Hey everybody, Jeremy here. Today we have a bonus episode for you where I sat down with brand new author, Eddie Brown. He just wrote a book entitled All Parishioners Great and Small. It's about his experiences with people in basically four decades of pastoral ministry. Well, who is Eddie Brown and why should you care? (laughs) Well, Eddie is... uh, basically my pastor. He is the first pastor I ever had. He uh, was pastoring at Maplewood Church in Sedalia, Missouri, the church where I came to know the Lord at the age of 16 when my mom passed away. I actually grew up next door to that church and didn't attend services there, but uh, the Lord started drawing me to himself, and I, I was attending services in late 2005 through summer 2006, and when my mom passed away, that's when I first believed. It was actually the first day of summer 2006, and Eddie was my pastor. He's also the only pastor that my wife ever had until we got married and moved away to Kansas City, and so uh, Pastor Eddie has played a major role in the lives of my wife and I and so many other people. And his book is basically uh, memoirs of, of his pastoral ministry, and my wife edited the book and formatted the book for him, and it's very well done. There are lots of fun stories in there, uh, and there are some sad sad ones too, uh, because that is the nature of ministry, isn't it? Lots of highs and lots of lows, but God is faithful through it all. So uh, I'm pleased to release this episode today. His book just came out. It was uh, published, or released, I guess is the better term, this last Tuesday, November 15th, and the Kindle version comes out this next Tuesday, November 22nd. I recorded this with Eddie back in June, I think it was, of this year at his house, and I think you'll enjoy this episode, whether you're in ministry or not, as we talk about his upbringing, his education, the book itself, and what he's learned in just reflecting on nearly four decades of pastoral ministry. So enjoy this episode today, a conversation between me and my pastor, Eddie Brown. Well, I am here in the upper loft of a barn in central Missouri with a man who's very important to me, Dr. Lonnie Edward no. Brown. See, already you've messed up. <laughs> <laughs> no one calls here you Here I was worried about that I might say something yeah. that was oh. mm. you know, wrong, mm-hmm. but here you've already, is, it is Dr. L. Edward Brown, ah. and it's Reverend Doctor. It's, uh, oh, yes. oh, wow, I did mess that up. Yeah, and like one of my friends would uh, assure me it's not a real doctorate. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> because it was from uh, Covenant Seminary or no, what? No, no, that's oh. fine. Yeah, it's, it's a D-min degree and not a PhD. Oh. Yeah, well, I thought you would have gone for the angel degree, but you went for the D-min instead. I'm still thinking about that. So. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, well, here we are. All yes. that to say, and and you're Eddie Brown. I am. And uh, you are the one who uh, baptized my wife when she was a little girl. Mm-hmm. You baptized me. You baptized my father. All in the same place, in Lake Palm de Terre, in Missouri. On Memorial Day weekend. On Memorial Day weekend, each one of us. Yes. Uh, at a at family camp. 
And uh, you were the one who officiated the wedding uh, between my wife and I. And uh, you were my first pastor, and you're still the one I call Pastor Eddie, though you're now retired. Is that appropriate? Yes, I'm largely retired. Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> and uh, you're from Brandon, Mississippi. Yes. And you've had pastorates in Iowa, Oklahoma, and your longest tenure here in Pettis County, Missouri. That's right. Well, um, what's a guy like you doing in a place like this, I guess, is where we could start. Uh, let's consider all the way back when you were in Brandon, Mississippi, what was your upbringing like and how did you get here? Well, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church that was nine miles north of Brandon, Mississippi. I believe that my grandfather helped to start the church. I'm not mm. absolutely certain of that, but that's in some of the folklore of the family. And we would go every Sunday. My mother did not drive at night. My father, as a bus driver for Continental Trailways, was sometimes not there to drive at night. And so we would go only in the mornings uh, to worship. But it was in that little church that I walked the aisle in the Southern Baptist way, hmm. talked to the preacher, shook his hand, and uh, I was converted. How old? I was 11 years old mm. and genuinely saved, uh, marvelously saved. It's a miracle every time it happens. Uh, 11 years old or 51 years old, mm. it's a miracle every time it happens. And then within a year, I was visiting with my other grandfather, who was a Methodist lay preacher. He was someone who pretty much set the standards for godliness in my early life. I, uh, to this day, have known no one else quite like him. Seventh grade education, mm. very well spoken, a good writer. I have several of his sermons. I have several of the little booklets that he wrote. And as I read them, I find no fault with them. Mm. And you know how nitpicky I mm. am when it comes to things like uh, commas and such. For, for those who may listen to my sermons... Uh, this is the pastor I've referenced who keeps track in the back of the books where the typos are throughout the book uh, or the uh, bad grammar, mispunctuation. Nitpicky is a, a bit of a generous statement. Well, thank you. I did let one of your grammatical errors go, by the way, without comment earlier. Though. Very good. Thank you. What act of grace. Yes. And I will remind you that once in a recent text, you corrected me. I, so. I sure did. <laughs> Surely did. <laughs> We go awry here. So, so your uh, grandfather, you said Methodist? He was. He was a Methodist and came out of the Methodist Church, as did a lot of people in the 1950s when they saw liberalizing tendencies. And he helped to start uh, a very conservative Methodist Church in his little town of Forest, Mississippi. But I would go to spend the night with him and my grandmother, he took me fishing. I was not a fisherman, still not a fisherman. Uh, sat on a stump beside the pond, got ticks and sugars, but talked with my grandfather mm. and told him at that time that I felt that God was calling me to full-time Christian service, mm. which was the general term in those days. And he gave me the illustration that walking in the will of God is like a man walking with a lantern with mm. every step that he takes. The light shines out further. He is more certain of the will of God with every step he takes within the will of God. 
And my grandfather, and you've heard me speak of him before, and I will say that I rarely can speak of him without tears, Mm. even, because his influence was so great. But at the end of his life, I was a seminary student at Dallas, and we were home one time as he was dying of pancreatic cancer, and he said to me the words that... I count as his last words, very special words that he said particularly to me that I count as the family blessing uh, with hands metaphorically upon my shoulders as he spoke to me those words. And then his last words that I ever heard him say were, there's nothing so important as winning souls for Jesus Christ. My other grandfather, uh, his last words that I recall, he was bedridden at the end of his life. We were out doing the chores on the farm early Sunday morning. I was visiting with him. Dad was doing the work. I was 11 years old, and he said, what are you doing today? Which I thought was odd, and I'm sure I cocked my head and said, you know, what do you mean, what are we doing today? Today's Hmm. Sunday. I mean, Hmm. that was my thought. And I said, we're going to church. And he said, there's no better place to be than in the house of the Lord. So those are the last mm. words that I recall from my grandfather's, and that is uh, part of what I count as the call of God upon my life, mm. and that's roughly when it began, and here I am today. Then you went to Mississippi State? No, I went to Mississippi College, which is a Southern Baptist school. Oh, I don't know why I thought you had a... West went to Mississippi State. Oh, yes. okay, okay. So I went to the oldest college in Mississippi, the oldest, and there's no older college hmm. or university in Mississippi than Mississippi College, uh, founded in 1826, hmm. I believe, and I graduated uh, in 1974. Okay, and when did you, when were you certain as we use that term roughly, sure. of God's calling on your life into uh, full-time Christian service. When did that happen? When did that register in your brain as far as, this is what God has for me? There were several moments like that, I would have to say. One was beside the pond with my grandfather that day. Another was after my sophomore year of high school. I'd gone to a Southern Baptist summer camp, and I had renewed my commitment to the Lord. I had walked away from from him somewhat during my sophomore year of high school. Uh, that uh, means that I might not have been reading my Bible daily, is uh-huh. what walked away mm. means largely. And there, there were, of course, things there and things in my life of which I'm not proud. But I came back to the Lord and I announced to the other church that I attended, First Baptist in Brandon, that I felt God's call on my life. Mm. And there was somewhat of a revival in Brandon area about that time. And that was a wonderful summer spiritually uh, for me and for many that came Mm. to Christ during that summer there. Then, as you've heard me talk before, there was a period of agnosticism that I had while I was in college. And uh, God graciously... uh, kept me through that and brought me back from that and renewed his call on my life, confirmed that I 
should go to seminary and should go into the pastorate. Just overcome with doubt from a more academic standpoint, or was it an emotional? It was academic largely, but primarily due to philosophy. I was an English lit major and a, and a philosopher. I lacked three hours having a double major in lit and philosophy. And <clears throat> it was during my fourth year of college, I believe, in the fall semester, that I counted myself agnostic for about four months, hmm. September through December. And on the eve of January 1st, I had gone to my church for the New Year's Eve celebration. Now, understand, during the spirit of agnosticism, I continued to read my Bible daily through that. I continued to go to church. Wait, inexplicably, you're doing these things? Uh, or, I mean, if you're claiming some form of agnosticism for yourself, why why do those things? Well, you know me to be somewhat of a person of habit, and dare I use the term inflexibility and rigidity, and I could go on. But uh, part of it was that, I think. But uh, it, it And it was just a habit that was so ingrained, and I still was searching, and I was still open, and yet I had serious and real doubts about the existence of God, and... I came back to the Lord in a major way on January the 1st, about 2 a.m. I was alone in my apartment, and I was in despair. I called out to God, God, if you're there, do something. And I have rarely seen such immediate answers to prayer, but I felt a genuine peace wash over me at that moment. And I counted that as a very firm and real answer to prayer. And I think it was another four months before I felt that I was back on a real firm biblical footing, but that was the beginning of hmm. my coming back to the Lord. I had friends who were about to go to seminary. I had always planned to go to seminary. And at that time, I thought I'm not spiritually in a position to make that decision, so I postponed that decision to go to seminary, and I slowed down the pace. I decided I would not graduate from college that year even, but the next year. So I took uh, one less course, and therefore I could not graduate that mm. year. And then prayed and sought the Lord and then felt led mm. again to go to seminary after that. And you started attending Dallas Seminary in 1970. You graduated in 78, right? Or 70? 79 from okay. Dallas. And so I started in 1975, graduated from college in 1974. And then we, I graduated uh, from seminary in 79. Yes, Would you like to see Ada's first time ziplining? Uh, I, how about I'll check that out a little bit, okay? Okay. Thanks. Everyone is invited. Okay, very good. Thank you. Now, this was uh, this was the heyday of Dallas Seminary. This was a really sweet time to go. Yes. Um, our classes were growing each year. Our entering class was 225, the largest ever hmm. at Dallas Seminary. I think it continued to grow for another several years. And the professors you had, I... Yeah, quite stellar. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did you just briefly touch on your time there and what, how that shaped you as a Christian and as eventually a pastor? Yes. Um, the faculty was great and grand at that time. Bruce Walkie was there. It was marvelous to hear him preach. He taught with such a passion, and it was perhaps more marvelous to hear him pray. Then there mm. were luminaries like S. Lewis Johnson and Harold Honer. Uh, those were several of the big names at the time. But people like Walter Bodine that most people have never heard of, I believe, finished his career at Yale and is not a Septuagint scholar. Uh, he was a joy to have in class. Mm. I was an Old Testament major, so I had him for a course in Isaiah. And Dr. Walkie left after my first year. Dr. Johnson left after my second year, I think, at seminary. Dr. Hunter was still there. I had him later for a couple of courses. Uh, Howard Hendricks, of course, was there. Ryrie, Walbert, Zuck, Toussaint, Pentecost. Yes, all of those. It's like I'm, I'm listing off the... Uh, Yankees lineup in the 1950s or something, <laughs> Mantle and uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the gang, Maris. Yes, and the, uh, all of those. So, and I was uh, proud to present Dr. Ryrie with a list of errata in the first edition of the Ryrie Study Bible. Wow. Yeah, and I Did... have, have those right here in this Bible. Oh. Still today, there they are. So. Wow. Was he, uh, was he thankful for... Your diligence there? Uh, he, he was appreciative. I mean, everybody knows that with any book, I will say virtually any book, there are errors in some form or fashion. And so he was glad to catch those. <laughs> yes. Well, you uh, have recently finished writing through, but you're still editing uh, your memoirs. Yes, I suppose it is. And this is your first book? Yes. What took you so long? Um, every time I would think of writing a book, someone else beat me to it. Uh, an example of that would be uh, John White, if you remember that name. He was, a, I think, Canadian psychiatrist, maybe. And he wrote uh, a wonderful book called Daring to Draw Near, I think was the mm -hmm. title. And that was a book I would have written. I remember my philosophy professor in college talking about books that he would have written, uh, William Faulkner and Soren Kierkegaard, and somebody else beat him to that. But uh, someone always beats me to everything. And, uh, well, like your book on marriage. See, I would have written that book, but oh, you sure. beat me to it. Yeah. And no, but no one's written your memoirs yet, so. No, but I, I have entrusted uh, Dr. David Puckett, uh, retired from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, with the task of uh, writing the official biography. Oh, very yes. good. Yes. Well, uh, this has... That's tongue-in-cheek. I mean, for people who don't know me, um, much of what I say is tongue-in-cheek. Uh, this is true. Yeah. Though David Puckett is a friend of yours. Yes. This isn't uh, some made-up connection. Right. He was my <laughs> college roommate. So I talk to him every week. <clears throat> well, let's, uh, let's think about what you've... What you've experienced in your pastorates, uh, you were in Iowa for how many years? 
Oklahoma first oh, Oklahoma for just first. over five years, then Iowa for just over five years. Okay. And, and then here in Missouri for 30, essentially. Yes, essentially. Uh, 40 years of pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. What do you think of when you think back of four decades of serving the local church? What What are some of the first things that come to mind having done that for that long period of time, but also over just some interesting things that have happened in the world uh, over the last 40 plus years. Uh, what, 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 what comes to mind as you think about your experience in pastoral ministry? I suppose I'm fairly focused and I can shut out everything in the world and focus on what's immediately before me so that I forget the context that's not what you wanted to hear, I think. Hmm. But the ministry is a, a wonderful profession, vocation, job. But it has a great many joys and a great many sorrows. And I would not have done anything else. And yet there were so many times that I would do anything else. Mm. And pastors, I think, can understand what I'm saying there. When I was called of God and and fairly trapped and feeling maybe like Jeremiah at times uh, and wanting to do something else and still feeling trapped in ministry. Um, and so many times that I would have walked away, and now I'm so profoundly glad and thankful that I did not, Hmm. and that God had me somewhat trapped because I would have walked away. It, it, It is a profession that hurts sometimes, and again, pastors will understand what I'm saying there. Is this book your effort to go back and put context to those experiences that you didn't have in the moment? You're taking your hindsight back through your pastoral ministry, this small town, small time pastor uh, going back through and seeing the bigger picture now on the other side of these events and how God was tying all things together. Or, or well, what's what's the aim of this book? Well, those words would uh, make a very nice foreword uh, to the book. Uh, no, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're much too generous with uh, what you assume my thought processes might be, or that I still have some. <laughs> but, um, no, really, it's just fond memories that I have hmm. and people that were dear to me interesting to me and again it's like what I expect anyone who picked up the book if it should ever appear in a bookstore somewhere is there still such a thing as a bookstore very few okay well if it were ever in a bookstore if anyone ever picked it up and anyone ever saw the title which they will appreciate the title is quite wonderful and I will not um, 
allow it uh, to be disseminated just yet. <laughs> Without express written consent. That's right, yes. And the sequel to it is uh, an even better title. Oh, my. Yes. Uh, but the title is about as far as it will ever get, mm. I'm afraid. Mm. At any rate, um, if anyone should ever pick up the book and see Eddie Brown at the bottom of the book, on the, on the front, they would say, who? And so why would anyone read this book? I, I wrote the book in the same vein in which I would make Facebook posts. I would consciously make Facebook posts. They were things that were of interest to me. I was writing with the hope of being positive in a very negative time, pandemic and neg negative uh, political situations. I wanted just to be positive. I wanted to enable someone to have a break from everything that was going on and my chief goal, other than uh, my chief goal as a Christian, is I, I mean, I want to see people come to Christ, want to see people grow in their faith. But one of the chief goals of this particular book was to help people smile. Mm. Well, one of the things I noticed in your Facebook posts, which every time I see one of them, it's a reminder that Facebook doesn't have a word letter count limit like. Twitter does. Yes. <clears throat> they are very long, <laughs> meandering posts. Uh, but but it is, it's one of those strange things as you're, you know, scrolling through your phone, whatever it may be, everything in the world is just quick hit, uh, explosive take on something, yes. hot take on something, get you enraged with just a headline type of publishing that goes on through our phones and computers and then you you stop and you see something from eddie brown mm -hmm. and he's taking you back however many years in whatever context and it's going to be a story leading up to a point yeah and it allows someone to actually disconnect at least for a moment yes from our raw raw polarized culture yes which there's something to be said for that. Uh, mm -hmm. We need more of that. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that used to be more of the, the norm, and now it's the exception. Mm -hmm. Has writing this over the last year or so, it's been about a year that you've been writing, right? Um, I, I, I actually wrote the book in about two months. Wow. And then I've had life interruptions since then, so I've only gotten back to it about three or four days ago. Well, has it been therapeutic for you? Oh, yes. To get lost in yes. these stories? It's fun. Uh, I, I, once upon a time, used to love to read back when I felt like I could concentrate and focus. And I, I lost that with some health issues uh, a year or so ago. But I found myself able to read again mm -hmm. a few months ago. And before I could read, I could write. I could focus. I could write. It was enjoyable just to do it. And... I could spend hours, and my wife, Wes, graciously gave me from 4 o'clock to 7 p.m. many days out of the week to do that. Yeah. And in about two months, as I said, I had you know, written the bulk of this. How much are the memoirs about the, uh, the different kinds of people you've encountered through pastoral ministry? Mostly all of 
is about that. It necessarily involves something of my history and story and personality just because I'm the one interacting with these people and they're interacting with me. Uh, for instance, a, a John Robinson. Do you remember John yeah. Robinson? Mm -hmm. So a John Robinson that would know that I was really pretty helpless when it came to a lot of things in life. <laughs> and I needed someone uh, who had blacksmith um, training and someone who had uh, fire marshal training at Whiteman Air Force Base to come and help me put together a wood stove. And he was willing to do that. Hmm. And so many people find me helpless and think, you know, that guy needs help. And I'm grateful for that. And I believe that hmm. I've helped those people in some way uh, along the way. And I've remained in their path. They've remained in mine. Um, but the people that I mention in the book very largely are already with the Lord. I have lots of other stories that I could tell, but I wanted to wait, as I say in the book, past the statute of limitations. Yeah, you don't have to get the permission anymore. I don't, yes. <laughs> so, um, and I, I remember a man from Tonkawa, Oklahoma, he said, now, Pastor Eddie, when you do my funeral, I don't want some grand eulogy. And I said, Joe, when you're gone, I'll do anything I want. <laughs> that's right. So, Absolutely right. Yes. So that's something of the, the character of the book, uh, mostly people who are with the Lord. Mm. And there were a few exceptions, and I asked permission even from those still living in several instances, and I'm sure there were many others that I should have asked, but yeah. didn't. A couple of areas where you don't need help in life uh, so much, art, history, literature, things like that. How much do those sorts of themes make their way into the book? Do you incorporate art and poetry and things of that nature? Yes, <laughs> and... I've relegated those to footnotes primarily. I like footnotes. I don't like end notes. Mm -hmm. I do. I like. You are footnotes. truly one of the elect. I am. I am. Um, TR. Yes. Uh, so I, I put some of those types of things in in footnotes because I know not everyone will be interested in that. But I think your wife will appreciate a little yeah. more background when mm -hmm. it comes to that. And. Mm -hmm. and People like yourself will mm -hmm. appreciate, okay, well, there's a there's a, an allusion to Tinter and Abbey by Wordsworth. So here, here are a few stanzas from yeah, that. Yeah, so. okay. When you were in seminary, uh, I imagine like many seminary and Bible college students, you were very interested in building your theology, creating a strong foundation for your theology, a biblical foundation, understanding what you believed, why you believed it, what your what your doctrinal statement should look like, that sort of thing. As you went off into actual, real-world Christian ministry, how did uh, the tension between forming your own theology and applying your theology play out as you interacted with God's people and sought to serve them? How did your priorities perhaps get rearranged? Uh, how did your theology drive your ministry? I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Um, 
I... Another way of putting it is, how important was dispensational premillennialism uh, 23 years into your ministry? What? (laughs) (laughs) I suspect that I used the word dispensational 10 times in mm, 40 years of preaching. So that tells you how much influence that had. That will disappoint a lot of people, I'm sure. And maybe... Our audience is not easily disappointed. Uh, yes. <laughs> That's yes. why they're here. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. And they keep coming back. <laughs> so, yes. Um, you know, premillennialism uh, more so. Yeah. Obviously, I am more attached to that than I was uh, to dispensationalism. Uh, I you know, consider myself somewhat dispensationalist today, but that has changed over the years. Um, I think in my first church, there were a few people to whom that sort of theological lineage was important. Most of the people didn't care Mm. about such uh, minute theological discussions and distinctions. And that's the way it's been for the rest of the time. My second church, even less so, was a church plant. Uh, Those people were concerned with evangelism and day-to-day ministry and didn't care about rarefied things like that. My third church had some people, once again, that were concerned with that sort of thing. Um, But my ministry over the years has been more of a teaching ministry, and I think a broad and general teaching ministry. I have been asked at times what I specialized in, and I would say, I don't think I specialize in anything. I I consider myself a generalist in uh, preaching and ministry. Uh, So, I don't know if that gets an answer to your question, but... Well, that's the beauty of such an interview is there is no uh, stated target for these answers. Mm-hmm. So you yes. just go wherever wherever your brain goes. Mm-hmm. As with all pastors, pain, suffering, and death plays a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you think back through perhaps even some of the stories that you've written about, you've recounted in your book, how did that topic... I, Remember, I had a class in Bible college, death, dying, and grief counseling. Uh-huh. Which, yeah, sign me up, right? Uh, yes. yes. Uh, <clears throat> but I mean, the the reality is, is that is a major part of true pastoral ministry. Um, how did that shape you as a pastor and even as a person? I allude to it in the book that I think one of the things that recommends me for ministry is my inability not to cry when someone is hurting. Mm. Um, I, I'm just touched very deeply when someone else is in pain. And that gives me an empathy that is very real with people. And often that's something that people need. Uh, of course, obviously they need 
the Lord and comfort from the Lord, the Holy Spirit to be at work. They need the Word of God. They need all of that. But in the process of getting that to them, they need a vessel that has empathy. And God made me that way. Mm. And that has made it possible for me uh, to be a pastor. Mm. I often have thought throughout ministry years that one of the things that made me for the pastorate made it difficult to be a pastor, and that is my, in a sense, uh, I, I don't want to say softness, but I don't want to say feelings on my sleeve, but I'm, I'm a sensitive person. I'm sensitive to other people. I care about people. I care about their hurts. I care about their opinions. I care about, sadly, their thoughts of me. I'm somewhat of a people pleaser, which is difficult because I need first and foremost to be a God pleaser. Mm -hmm. I know that. That's some of the tension of my ministry. And God enabled me to be a sensitive pastor, but there were times when I wished that I had that hardened uh, brow that he gave to Jeremiah so that he could withstand all the pressures and the insults and the projectiles mm. that come to a minister who stands up for Jesus Christ. Mm. So I lacked that hardness. I had the opposite type of sensitivity. So that sensitivity enabled me to be a pastor and it at the same time made it difficult for mm. me to be a pastor. Mm. Well, I am a beneficiary of your empathy. Um, the first verse I ever memorized of Scripture was actually just a phrase. Um, and I memorized it <clears throat> the moment I heard it. We, You and I were together at University Hospital in Columbia. Uh, my mom was passing away. Uh, I was 16 years old. You were sitting next to me, and you took out a little pocket New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs. It had an orange cover. And you read to me from Psalm 61, and you had a hard time making it through those verses. And I memorized the phrase, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And that was the first portion of scripture that was ever truly committed to heart memory. And I know that that week, and not only had my mom committed suicide and you were ministering to me and my father, uh, there was someone else in the church who just lost a baby that week. Stillborn. Uh, yes. How did you make it through weeks like that um, in ministry? I mean, there, there are people who might be listening to that this who are going through that right now, that kind of week. That had to be so utterly draining because Sunday is still coming on yes. top of all mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. How did you make it through? Yes. As I recall, the the baby had died at on a Thursday evening and I believe your mother's death was on a Friday I may be wrong on that uh, so that's obviously two days before the preaching event on Sunday um, and I'm a last-minute sort of person I'm never prepared I've never been prepared a day in my life for anything <laughs> and what an admission <laughs> I, now I have heard you say that there were sometimes you went to your office Sunday morning and you weren't sure what you were going to preach. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, 
Uh, I, 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 I can't fathom that type of uh, experience. Yes, uh, and and you can't. I know that. I've observed you. But, <laughs> but I would uh, each week uh, go through a couple of different possible preaching scenarios and outlines and approaches and major points and throw them away on Friday and start afresh and very often I get to Sunday morning and it's this, what in seminary might have been an exegetical outline, but it's not a homiletical outline at that point. But God shows up on Sunday morning and, you know, Lord, help me. And, mm. and he does. And then the message just appears. It's just so clear. And then it's given and it's given with freedom. Uh, you know, when the Holy Spirit's involved. But in a, in a week like that, um, just getting that call at about 9.30 at night that an hour away in a hospital, a baby has died, going to the hospital, getting home, you know, after midnight, uh, after visiting with the, the grieving couple. And then the next day, uh, again, your mother's death. And... The terrible trauma of both of those, uh, God shows up. God helps. You know, there's no other way. I'm, I'm <laughs> as inadequate as anyone that I've ever known. And yet, sometimes God consents to use me, condescends to use me, and, and uh, that blesses my heart. But um, there's no... There's no explanation for how he gets us through some things, and yet uh, we know that he is the only way that we get through some things. Amen. Just as powerful as, are the, the moments of joy in ministry mm -hmm. and happiness mm -hmm. and the mountaintops of ministry where you feel like you got the whole thing figured out. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> yes. What are some highlights as you think back in ministry of moments of true joy? Uh, are, are there any commonalities between those events uh, as you look back on 40 years of pastoral ministry? I suppose the commonalities would be those times when I was ministering to someone who came to Christ or someone who was growing in Christ, individual face-to-face -face discipleship type ministries. Those are the ones that are ultimately, I think, the most satisfying. Mm. Mm. Uh, I love to preach, and it is an exhilarating feeling, and preachers will know this when they uh, feel the their, I guess, the, the wings of the Holy Spirit lifting them up and, uh, and sense it. God is pouring forth speech from their mouths and they are an instrument in yes. the hands of God. That's an exhilarating uh, feeling. And sadly, I can remember times when I felt I was studied up, I felt I was prayed up, and yet I get to the pulpit and, God, where are you? Hmm. And I can... I can I was a professional enough to be able to go through the outline, get the words out and over the pulpit. But God, where are you? Mm. And 
I can also remember moments when things were just going so marvelously well as a preacher that I was tempted to think, huh, boy, that was that was good. Mm. And I said it just right. <laughs> I'm really getting pretty good. And all this inner dialogue going on, I don't know if you do this, Jeremy, but and I'm sure you don't sin like that, but of course not. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing, and at least it is to me, the things that I can think about, like before you came to Christ, and I would see you outside on Sunday mornings, outside the church window. Uh, people in the congregation hopefully were facing me, but I could see you shooting baskets out there on Sunday morning. And I remember when you had that uh, goal that was lowered down so you could dunk it. Oh, and, yeah. yeah I, I think it only had to lower it a few inches. <laughs> yes, right? I, I think so. A few inches from eight feet. And that was when I was in... Uh... <laughs> a junior in high school. Yeah, stop it. Uh, <laughs> but, hey, my, my ego was there. Watch your yeah, feet. Yes. <clears throat> but there are those moments when things are going so marvelously well that the tempter shows up and we begin to congratulate ourselves in preaching, mm. and then suddenly God is gone. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, we are like in Psalm 22 and feeling like, you know, God, why have you forsaken me? And that's at the first of the sermon. Then there are those times when everything is right, and then we feel suddenly alone and mm. terribly alone when we're kind of in that situation like Spurgeon told his students, you think you can preach a powerful sermon? You think that you are equal to the task? All you will get from God is the opportunity to try. Mm. And that's terrifying. It is. I have three more questions. Can yes. you handle three more? Sure. With Especially considering your personality, mm -hmm. um, and going through memoirs and conjuring up all sorts of memories that don't make it into the book mm -hmm. uh, uh, and thinking through your years of ministry and things you did wrong. Ugh. How do you handle the disappointment in yourself, the insufficient, the feelings of insufficiency, even guilt that you might have in your years of ministry? How do you handle that? as you think through the ways that you came up short, as we all inevitably do, mm -hmm. how have you come to terms with that? Yeah, I, I have several things that leap to mind as you ask that, several events. Uh, one, particularly in Iowa, uh, when I was, I would say, ministering to a grieving couple, and I was inept and I was stupid and I was ineffective. Uh, a conflict situation here and there uh, in my last ministry here in Missouri that I was at fault and the other person in conflict was in fault, uh, at fault as well. I'm thankful to the Lord that those instances to the glory of God were worked out and worked through. Mm. 
that former incident that I allude to, there was never real resolution to that. And someone who came under my ministry as a virtual agnostic and came close to Christ, probably through my ineptness at one particular moment, was offended and... I know nothing of where he ended. So those things I hate and I love. God was certainly good in helping through the conflict. And there were several times when Wes and I thought that our ministry here in Missouri was at an end. I would say chiefly four times over the not 27 plus years. And we stayed by God's grace and with God's help. And those persons with whom I was in conflict were some of my closest friends. So I guess God takes those things, uses those things, uses our fallibility, our mistakes brings about growth by his grace. But I still look back and I uh, wince mm. at so many things uh, throughout life, uh, high school, you know, college, just on and on. Uh, you know, so many things that I have profound regrets about. It's like the scriptures where some terrible situation is being discussed and relayed and then you see two words but God mm-hmm. and if if it were not uh, for him for his grace his forgiveness uh, the ways he renews us uh, mm. I would have quit a long time ago and I would have been more useless than I am so. if you could go back now, almost 50 years, 45 years or so, mm-hmm. and help prepare yourself for ministry. What's some of the advice you would take back with you, and what would you prioritize in, in communicating to your past self? Oh, goodness. There are so many things that I should do differently, but I am caught up in the limitations of my own personality. Uh, I am uh, very much an introvert. I love people, and yet I love times in which I'm alone. One one of the great family moments is when Anna and Wes were sitting in this very room, and Anna and Wes were discussing Gary Chapman's book, uh, The Five Love Languages, and one of them, well, maybe you know them, maybe you don't, but you know, she finally, uh, it's like gifts, it's like acts of kindness, yeah, words right. of encouragement, the gift of time or something. I forget exactly what. And Anna says, Dad, what's your love language? And I said, quality time alone. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, they know me, they laugh, they uh, understand, they love. But uh, I... I... I'm sure I would tell myself to be with people more than I was, uh, to not become uh, so caught up and just 
so fussy about perfectionizing um, various sermons, for mm. instance. Mm. Uh, I manuscript sermons all of these years. So uh, that takes time and discipline and time and time. And to what end and, and mm. why, uh, ultimately, when really my best sermons are when God just at the last minute says point one, point two, point three, boom. Mm. And I guess fuss less and love more is what I would say. That should be on a sign somewhere. Yeah. I'm not sure I could pull it off, though, mm. given who I am. I think I would also say to my former self, pay attention in Latin class in high school <laughs> and keep, keep Latin revived and... and Maybe consider... Make Latin great again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and maybe consider a classics major along with English Lit and Philosophy and a triple major in college. Um, so things like that. Mm. So what practical use does that have for anyone, really? But here I am. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you've got your Bible sitting there. Yes. What passages have... have comforted you, have motivated you, have given you vision uh, as, again, not only a pastor, but as a Christian uh, in your life experiences, what are some of the most precious passages that have spoken to your heart um, and have have been the ones that you've cherished? I would suppose um, you know, hearing my grandfather quote Psalm 1, for instance, hearing my grandfather uh, beginning to quote John 14, and he could quote 14 through 17, mm. uh, and many other passages that my grandfather could quote, uh, but uh, he uh, he would speak of Hebrews 12, 14, uh, holiness without which uh, no man will see the Lord. Uh, the J.C. Ryle book by that title was one of the most influential in my life, but I think one of my favorite texts in Scripture is one that I think the King James translates properly, and I think modern translations fail. It's in Psalm 37. It's verse 37. Mark the perfect man, and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. And the word perfect does not mean perfect in our uh, 21st century Understanding, but it means a, a whole and a complete man uh, spiritually, and that uh, person who has God involved in his life and is developed and is uh, full in God's development of that person, man or, or woman. But behold, the upright, the one that really lives and walks according to the Word of God. And here's the key phrase for the end of that man is peace. I think modern translations say for that man will have a posterity. Mm. But they're reaching for it to get to that translation. What's wrong with the King James translation? The end of that man is peace. It's a, a preposition in Hebrew and, and after of that man is peace. Mm. Uh, what's going to take place after, meaning at the end 
of life of that man is peace. Towards the end, the latter part, uh, what comes as a result of walking with the Lord is peace. And again, this is biblical peace. This is Old Testament peace. This is shalom. This is God's making everything right and wonderful, Edenic-like. God's making everything whole and just as it should be. Now, you know that I'm uh, not a prosperity uh, gospel type of person, so I'm not suggesting anything like that. But I'm saying that, like so much of the Psalms, uh, there are general truths. There are exceptions in all of this. Job was one of those exceptions. And yet, uh, generally, when a person walks with the Lord, there is this profound good life that comes. Not always. Uh, You'll still see some of those servants, uh, like a pastor who recently died here in Sedalia, Missouri, uh, Craig Bowen, a a Mm. wonderfully godly and wonderfully lovely man, and yet he died of cancer, a a painful death. Uh, But he loved the Lord. So, at any rate, I think he would read this with me and say yes Mm. to it, uh, because God does good things even in the midst of those uh, terribly difficult things. Mark the perfect man, behold the upright, for the end of that man is shalom. I love that verse. Amen. Well, Eddie Brown, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Yeah. I did the... I've never been on Twitter, and the reason is because I, if I'm totally relaxed, I say outlandish things, <laughs> and and I quickly take them back. But with Twitter, I, I think it's hard to take things back. So I hope you will kindly edit uh, uh, this edition. I think you did a good job putting your own gutter guards up and <laughs> <clears throat> keeping yourself on the straight and narrow. There today. you go. So. Good. Good. Okay.